tonight's talk is entitled, Finding Ease with Strong Emotions. There's a cartoon that reminds me of an experience of my own that uh, I like to share on retreat. And these two monks are walking along in this monastery, and it's uh, a quarter moon night, and uh, there's these beautiful arches of the temple, like at one of the places that we used to use before we had the, the facilities here at Spirit Rock. It's a very similar look to it. And one monk is saying to the other, I always feel a tad secular on Saturday nights. And here we are on Saturday night. And it's easy to feel a tad secular on Saturday night. One time I was sitting the three-month retreat at IMS. And it was a Saturday night. And it was also a full moon night. (laughs) And I had been aware of uh, feelings of aloneness, the, the, the emotions of aloneness, and thinking about how much of my life I had spent with this feeling of aloneness, not necessarily as a bad thing, but not necessarily as a good thing either, just aloneness and the kind of soulful feeling of that, the kind of bluesy feeling of being alone and all. And lo and behold, after the, uh, the 6.30 uh, sit, here was this woman who uh, may have been a visitor. I don't quite know who she was, uh, and, uh, who had been staying there at the retreat for a while or a staff person leaving. But she had all of her boxes stacked in the front lobby area, and her car was parked out front just where I did my walking meditation, right out front. So I watched this woman packing her bags to go down this empty road on a full moon night. And... My emotional body wanted to go down that empty road with her. I just wanted to do that. And it wasn't romantic or not romantic. Maybe it would have been romantic. Or maybe I would have been her friend and she was hurting and I would be her friend. Or maybe we would be two souls in the agony of human existence just going down the road. This feeling of emotion... It can be that free-forming and quite strong. It was a very strong emotion and stayed with me for a number of days during the retreat. I was not discontent, although there was a painful aspect to that emotion because there was that wanting to connect, wanting to be on the road in connection wanting to be doing the journey together. And that that kind of longing, we all know that. Is there anyone in this room who's not felt that? So we know that feeling. But I was not discontent with having the feeling. That was just the predominant emotion. It was unpleasant, but there it was. So that's one way that these emotions can come up. And we wish to cultivate an ease with the emotion. I could have gotten very upset. I could have gotten into some great lamentation about my life or about why am I doing this or lots of other ways I could have gone, but it so happened I didn't. So there was ease. Another situation at IMS, I'd been sitting on this particular retreat for six weeks. And it was the three-month retreat and you sat for six weeks or the whole retreat. 
and it was a full retreat. So I'd set the first six weeks, and it was time for me to go home because there were a whole, there was some people were sitting the whole three months, and some people were coming to take the place of those of us who were leaving after six weeks. So um, I said to Joseph, who was my teacher on this retreat, I said, oh, Joseph, by the way, uh, I'm not ready to leave. <laughs> and he said, but Philip, we've got a full retreat. You have to leave. We don't have any place for you to sleep. I said, well, that's a problem, but I can't leave. <laughs> Why I could not leave was because there was present in me two very strong emotions that are considered wholesome emotions. They are emotions, but wholesome emotions in relation to uh, practice. One is this a word called chanda, which is this, uh, this great desire to practice. It's one of the, Itipata is one of the four powers to have this chanda for the dharma, to, to find liberation, to know the truth. Chanda. So there was a huge amount of chanda just, just rolling through me. And likewise, there was this feeling of, of which comes from Patanjali also, of samvega, which sometimes translated as spiritual urgency or practicing urgency, or if you don't like the word spiritual, you can make your own word for that. But this urgency, this practice as though your hair were on fire kind of feeling, there's an urgency, not an urgency out of desperation, not a panic urgency, but an urgency because you realize that you, you, that you, you are of the nature to die and that there's a limited time. And you realize that there's only so much energy that you have and that you can see the ebb and flow of your own energy. And out of this, just as a, as a wholesome emotion, there arises this feeling of, whoa, I need to get on with this. I need to get on with this. But it's not panicky. It's not judgmental. It's a wholesome emotion, this samvega. As we work together over these 18 months, there will be times when you will come in touch with your own chanda, your own samvega. Even though it's a wholesome emotion, if you go into clinging around it, if you go, oh, I've got to throw out my whole life, and I go uh, join a monastery, then you, you can throw yourself into a kind of turmoil, a kind of splitting from yourself that is not a wholesome state. So being at ease, even with wholesome emotions, requires mindfulness, requires mindfulness and compassion. But this mindfulness that uh, allows us uh, to, uh, to see clearly the emotional state, I will come back to that towards the end of the talk. But this kind of, of clear seeing when we're mindful, this clear seeing that allows us to, to be balanced in our emotions, no matter if they're coming from the ego or coming from the deepest part of our heart. So to read you the, the uh, words of the third foundation of mindfulness, He knows a lustful mind to be a lustful and a, to be lustful, and a mind without lust to be without lust. He knows an angry mind to be angry, and a mind without anger to be without anger. He knows a deluded mind to be deluded, and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. And he knows a contracted mind to be contracted, and a distracted mind to be distracted. He knows a great mind to be great, 
and a narrow mind to be narrow. He knows a surpassable mind to be surpassable and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. He knows a concentrated mind to be concentrated and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated. He knows a liberated mind to be liberated and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. Got that, didn't you? <laughs> it's, um, it, it can be a little overwhelming to hear it. It can be a little overwhelming to read it because we have to unpack some of the meanings. Most of this talk is not about dissecting this, uh, this particular instruction in the Satipatthana per se, but I want to give you a little nugget of it, and then uh, over time as your practice deepens, you'll hear many more talks on this, and uh, we may explore it uh, later on ourselves in relation to something we're going to be doing in a later retreat. So a lustful mind... That's a mind that's got greed. Lust is for any of the sense gates. So it could be you could lust for uh, beauty. You want to walk outside because you're caught in the lust of the beauty here. So a lustful mind, an angry mind, and a deluded mind. These are the, 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 the three kinds of challenges that are the most common challenges that the, these... Uh, these three poisons it's sometimes uh, described as this, this greed and aversion, an angry mind and a deluded mind. And so in this, this being aware of the mind state, what's happening because of the emotions. So is, is the mind with greed or not with greed right now? So you know that. That's, you, can, you can ask yourself that. And it's not that you're supposed to go, it's not like you're taken off on an airplane and you, you pull down your checklist and as everything before you take flight. It's not that kind of a way. It's just being informed. It's starting to let this, this kind of knowing be in there that you've got a perspective, you have a context. You don't have to hold on to this, but you just notice, is the mind filled with greed or not? Is the mind filled with aversion or not? Is the mind deluded or not? You practice somewhat differently if your mind is deluded. You practice somewhat differently if, if your mind's filled with aversion. And you already know how to do that from how you've worked this far in this retreat and, and other retreats that you've worked. So these are the first three of these, of these mind states that uh, the Buddha describes in, the, in this third foundation. And they are actually opposites. So there's sort of six there. It's the minds either with greed or not with greed. So there's... Uh, there's uh, uh, two ways of looking at it, and you, and you notice that. And then this fourth of, of the uh, mind states that he iterates, he, he says, you know if the mind is contracted or you know if the mind is distracted. For our purposes, the way I would have us notice this, and this is not uh, always the way the commentaries go, uh, I would have us notice if the mind is contracted, is my mind rigid right now? Is my mind held so tight because something's come up that's got me all rigid? Or is there a, a fixation to the mind or some sort of uh, uh, fright in the mind? That's why how I would have you look at this contracted mind. The typical instruction of this is the mind's contracted because it's got sloth and torpor. But in my own experience and in my experience of teaching all these years, 
if there's a lot of energy in the mind when it's contracted, it does not go into sloth and torpor. It goes into this kind of, uh, when it's contracted, it goes into tightness and, and tension and rigidity and fixation. So just to notice, oh, yeah. So wow, So what I turns out what I'm going to be practicing in this particular sit, at least for right now, is dealing with all of this rigidity, this tension in my mind. Or if the mind is distracted, the mind's really restless everywhere. There's a, it's not grounded. It's not steady in being able to stay with the object, to stay with the practice. Or there's not a focus that you're there, but it's not very focused. The mind's too agitated in that way. And so you just notice, if that's true, then, that's, then you practice a different way. You wouldn't try to uh, follow your, a very subtle kind of experience in the body if your mind is all distracted and restless because you don't have enough uh, uh, bandwidth at that moment to do it. So you practice being with restless mind. That's okay. It's, you've got to practice with some object. The object does not have to be pleasant. It doesn't have to be as you would have it be. You can practice with any mind state that's arising from any emotion. It's all available for practice. It's just being mindful with the object. Our business is how we relate to the objects, not controlling the objects. We certainly want wholesome objects when we can invite them to come, but we ha- we, our job, our business, our commitment, our intention is to be with whatever emotion that's arising. That's how we get to be at ease with it because we're willing to be with whatever's there, so we're not afraid of any particular one. We can be at ease with any particular emotion. This does not happen all at once. This is the gradual path, and it takes some years to be at ease with certain emotions for some people. Very understandably so. Very understandably so. So, uh, when we uh, uh, look at this uh, relationship to our mind states, from the point of view of practice, we, uh, we, we get outside of our story about all of our emotional states because we're not seeing it autobiographically. We're seeing it in relation to practice. The autobiographical aspect may be showing up, but that's not what we're interested in. It's just another object of practice. It's not that we don't care about it. We're being very compassionate as we're being with a difficult emotion. Very compassionate towards that. But we're not interested in exploring the story. You know, who shot John? Whose fault was the breakup of the marriage? We're not looking to, uh, to assign blame. So there's not judging. There's not comparing. There's not fixing. As I said in the meditation the other morning. In our meditation, not judging, comparing, or fixing, but rather discernment and attending. Discern, discernment knows what's true, and attending responds to from the heart in the most skillful ways and uses all your experience to know what's skillful. It's really beautiful practice in that way. In uh, uh, Western mythology, in Dante's Divine Comedy, there's two places where this sort of comes up for me. I've, um, uh, I've, I've been deeply affected by the Divine Comedy in terms of a Western vision of spiritual practice. And, 
ignoring its immediate historical references, I think it was really an inspired work that there was, there was and that those times of writing that, he had many moments when his mind was liberated. Not saying it stayed there, mind you. <laughs> Just temporary mind states. And, and one of these situations, and this, what is the ordinary mind state, whether there's greed or whether there's anger or whether it's diluted or contracted or, or, or distracted, these ordinary mind states coming from emotions. Um, in, the, in the Divine Comedy, he, he goes through hell and comes to purgatory. And when he gets to purgatory, these people are laboring under great difficulty. And his heart is so touched. And he says to them, oh, I will pray that you get rest. And they reply, don't pray that we get rest, but rather pray that we have energy to respond, to continue our work, to finish our work. And to me, this is one way of relating to practice when there's difficult emotions. We don't, we, we're not objecting if difficult emotions are what have visited us, that the causes and conditions were such that difficult emotions have arisen. But rather, our intent, our, 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 uh, our re- request of ourselves is that we have the strength, we have the energy and the interest to be compassionate and to attend to these difficult emotions. This is the purification process of practice. So there is an insight to our practice, but there's also a purification. And one of the ways, there are other ways, but one of the ways that this purification comes about is through attending to these difficult emotions when they arise. The more we understand that, oh, this is just our business, this is our opportunity, the more at ease we can be with ourselves during times when difficult emotions arise. Over a period of time, you can uh, arrive at at a a dramatically different relationship with difficult emotions. Dramatically different. Uh, For some of you, you would not believe it. You wouldn't even recognize yourself in that way in relation to a difficult emotion. It, It can change so much. You're not to take my word for this, but rather to say, well... I wonder if that's true. I will see for myself. The other place in the Divine Comedy that relates to uh, these higher states of emotion, a a mind that is unsurpassed, a a mind, a a great mind, a mind that is liberated, and so forth, these these four so-called higher emotions, has to do with when uh, uh, Dante gets to heaven. So now he's in heaven. And there's all these different spheres in heaven. And one is more magnificent than the next. And his comment, though, which so relates to Buddhism, is that although one is more magnificent than the next, there is no discontent. Nobody is discontent. So at whatever state of mind there, at whatever state of mind there is, there's no discontentment. As we get deeper in our practice and some of you are quite experienced and some of you it's been coming out in the interviews you've had a you've had a lot of retreat experience and some of you are right now working with some of the more subtle mind states this 
uh, quality of being at ease with whatever mind state is present is a wholesome thing. So the, the mind may have, have this ease in which you can move to any object that is so flexible right now. This is the way I would, for our purposes, have you note this a great mind. That the, the mind, is, it's, it can really just move to any object. Here you are with the body. Now you are with an emotion. Now you're back with the breath. And you're just there. Now you're just there. There's this flexibility of mind as opposed to it not being able to handle the movement from one object to another without getting lost because it's so narrow. It, can't, it, it doesn't infuse a large area. And so that, when that mind state is present, take it as grace. Take it as a gift. Just be grateful for it. And know, in terms of the emotion, that the emotion you're cultivating in that moment is contentment with that. There's curiosity and there's contentment. As opposed to go, what else can I get? What else can I get? Or how do I keep this? Boy, this is it. This is what I've wanted all along. How can I go about it? That I keep it. Because as soon as you do that, you pop out of it. Those of you who've had experiences on retreat, you know this is true. Two of you today described this about getting somewhere that was really like, oh, this is so peaceful. And then you get excited about, wow, I'm here. And then it's gone. So being at ease with positive emotions, being at ease with wholesome emotions, not grasping is part of it. This, uh, a great emotion would be an emotion, again, for our purposes, where you can, where you can, uh, you can move around with ease, an emotion where it is, where it's, uh, where there's, um, it's not, uh, where, where it is unsurpassable. It's that you have really dropped in. So your mind is really able to be fully with the object. It's just, it's just completely there. There's you and the object, and. Um, uh, you, uh, for those of you with more experience, you might think of this in terms of fourth jhana, but you don't have to because in Vipassana, there is this same kind of total oneness with an object. For some of you, this is like irrelevant to you right now, but just later on it may be relevant, so just name this. And then in relation to a mind that's concentrated, for the purposes of insight, the mind is just fully there with insight. It's not being distracted by anything. It is totally concentrated on knowing what's true. It's available for insight to arise. Remember, you can't practice insight. You can only practice creating the conditions for insight to arise. And then liberated is when the mind is temporarily, for our purposes temporarily, liberated from any kind of clinging, any kind of greed, hatred, or delusion. The mind's really free temporarily. It's a liberated mind. In the course of these uh, three retreats, many of you will have moments of this where the mind really feels liberated. It's a great feeling, and it's very inspiring to practice. But again, it's not something to be held on to. So at ease with whatever mind state we're dealing with, whether it's an ordinary mind state, it's ordinarily like, oh, I'm, I'm caught in a lot of aversion or there's a little bit of aversion or there's no aversion. Ordinary mind state. We're at ease with that. We are uh, we're willing to be with the ordinary mind state with contentment. 
even though it's an ordinary mindset. So we're not, we're not someplace higher in our mind state right now. There's these ordinary emotions. We could be driving our cars or walking down the street and be having these same emotions. Fine. We'll practice with those. We don't need it to be different. We're not caught in this delusion of that we've got to have it a certain way. A cartoon that I like very much, there are two fish in this vast ocean. And uh, one is looking at the other with, are you kidding me? Because the one is saying, I want the whole package, the little bowl, the colored pebbles, the plastic castle. (laughs) It is so easy for us to get caught in that in our emotional body. It can be about your life, your home life. You want the whole package, your work life, your your practice life, your dharma life, or the whole package, all three of them. You want it all. And you have a fixed idea. You have a fixed idea of what that's supposed to look like. And you're practicing towards your fixed idea, which has all this emotional charge to it, which is really just a concept. It's a view. It's just a view. And yet you can totally cling to that, totally contract into that and have so much emotion, but it's actually in the way of, of you're actually practicing because we don't know. It's don't know mind. We don't know what the, the highest state would be. We don't even know what the best relationship would be or the best job would be or what's going to happen next. So there's a humility. There's don't know mind. There's willingness to show up and be available to life from our deepest intentions. I'm available to life. I'm available to the Dharma. Such courage. Such courage. Because that fixity of idea is a way we shelter ourselves from all the vulnerability of not knowing. The vulnerability that is of this realm. To be in this realm is to be vulnerable. To be in this realm is to not know. This is the nature of this realm. See it for yourself. As you see it for yourself, you become much more at ease with the emotions in this realm. So I had my orders this morning to talk about, well, are we supposed to suppress all of our emotions? Are we supposed to kill our emotional body, get rid of it, so that we just, we just sit? So this is the part where I do my duty and, and answer this, this question as best I am able. So are all emotions bad? Are they to be suppressed? Are they to be eradicated? The answer is yes, no, both, neither. Yes, no, both, neither. Took care of that, huh? (laughs) No, the answer is no, because the Buddha talked about the many happiness of the lay person and also the many happy mind states, period, of all people, including the monks and the nuns. He talked about being out in nature and he, he talked about uh, the appreciation of small things. For just as the, a mind state that can see that is uh, happy, that there is that you have a, a positive feeling, you have a positive emotion about that. And for the lay people, he talked about everything from the happiness of good health to the happiness of being debt-free. So even in the Buddhist time, right? So he was not 
in any way saying, oh, you can't have happy emotions. You can't have emotions in that way. It is, again, your relationship to those emotions that he is pointing to. So it's not as in this cartoon, I like doing this for a yoga group. There's a cartoon that was from the New Yorker where uh, the bartender is talking to a guy sitting at the bar about a guy who's sitting on the far side. The guy sitting on the far side's got this out of it look. He's just out of it. And the bartender says, yeah, that's Irv. He took a yoga class, emptied his mind, and never filled it again. <laughs> so we're not trying to empty our mind of emotions. <sighs> Isn't that a relief? Yet, the answer is yes in terms of insofar as the emotions we're having represent clinging, represent a violation of the precepts, represent a cause of suffering, these are emotions to be worked with in order to release them, to not continue to be plagued by them. So those, the unskillful actions coming from unwholesome emotions, we are wishing to eradicate. We're wishing to eradicate not by destruction, but by understanding by mindful attending, by attending with compassion. The, there's, in one sutta, the very last thing that the Buddha says to deal with, is if it, with in relation to the mind, is if nothing else works, crush it. <laughs> but that's the last of the last thing, and he hardly ever says that. But sometimes that's what you have to do. But that's not what's usually true. Usually you attend to, you remember your precepts, you remember what you're about, and... You, you don't have to do that. As you stay with the emotion, you, start to, you, you, you have a wise relationship start to develop in terms of it. But it does take some time to do this because these, uh, these emotional states can be quite strong. And if we continue to indulge in them, we continue to uh, feed them, they will continue to stay alive and they will even grow. A poem from Hafiz. It's called elegance. It is not easy to stop thinking ill of others. Ill of others would be an unwholesome emotion, this envy, this judging others, this uh, anger towards others, resentful of others. It is not easy to stop thinking ill of others. Usually, one must enter into a friendship with a person who has accomplished that great feat herself. Then something might start to rub off on you of that true elegance. So spiritual friendship, sangha, the importance of being with people who want to feed the wholesome emotions and not feed the unwholesome emotions. Very hard to do on our own. Very hard to do. Not impossible, but very hard to do particularly in the earlier years of our practice. So, you saw the way it was no, that it's fine to have all emotions, we'll deal with all emotions. Yes, that we want to sort through, we want to feed wholesome emotions, not feed unwholesome emotions. And now both. With both, 
we're allowing the mind states and the emotions to be in order to see them in their, their in terms of the three characteristics so every emotion every mind state is condition based that is that it's impermanent that it's due to change even the most wholesome mind state everything in the satipatthana sutta is described as impermanent. That is one of the ways you're supposed to see it. You're supposed to see it as arising and passing. This isn't my opinion about this. This is what the the sutta says. So you see it as arising and passing. You see it as not self. That is, there's no you that owns that mind state. It comes and it goes. It, It doesn't belong to you. And then to see the dukkha in it, even a wholesome mind state, if you are clinging to it, there's dukkha. And when you lose it, there's a little feeling of, oh, even if you're not clinging, it's a little, oh, small dukkha, but there's a little dukkha there. <laughs> so, no, yeah, sorry, yes, no, no, yes, both, and now neither one. Neither neither get rid of the emotion nor, nor uh, hold on to it. And this is because that whole question about what to do about our emotions. What are we supposed to do with our emotions? Emotions are the juice of life. This is what gives me meaning. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Nothing wrong with your juice. Uh, Cultivate your juice in the most wholesome ways. But that's not the question in the end. That area of living your life and your daily life, I don't call it real life. I call it daily life because I consider this more real life than than our daily life, honestly. But as we bring more mindfulness in our daily life, then it's equally real. But when we're so deluded, wow, you know, we're living our projections. We're not even living our lives. But with mindfulness, retreat time and non-retreat time, it's, it's all life. It's all our our life, our full life. So in this regard, the the emotions are coming and going like everything else. So we're meeting meeting life however it is, whether it's uh, emotions are there, whether body sensations are there, whether there's stillness there, there's hardly anything going on, where we're seeing everything in terms of dharma, we're meeting all of that equally. It's not the content in that way that is our concern, but again, our relationship to it. We are concerned that we be at ease with all emotions. This is how we arrive at choiceless awareness. Choiceless awareness is when our mindfulness is so complete, so content, so steady, so without uh, prejudice, that anything that arises, we can be with it. And we can be with it in a wholesome way. We can be with it in a skillful way, in a harmonious way. This is choiceless awareness. So in that sense, it doesn't really matter what's happening. We just, we're learning to be with it from this, 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 uh, this wing of wisdom and this wing of compassion. So we've got big emotions arising. We're, we're deeply in love or we're very, we care so much about uh, social justice or we have our view about politics and we really think this guy's a bad guy and this is a good guy or at least this guy's a better guy or something. How, how we are with all of those emotions. 
That's the point. It doesn't really matter what the emotion is. It's, it's, does that lead us towards skillful action, skillful thoughts, skillful speech, or unskillful thoughts, un, unskillful action, unskillful speech? That's the question. So uh, not being concerned with it, uh, the, the particularities in that way, although always attending to it, but taking all the particularities as impersonal, this is how you get to have ease in the emotional body. I say emotional body because, again, that's what my teacher in India refers to it. It's the mind at ease with the emotions. And the wonderful job that Anna did last night in talking about pleasant and unpleasant and that uh, exercise we got to do. Well, the question came up this morning about about uh, the, the, our relationship to pleasant and unpleasant. How we get caught is when something is unpleasant, we contract. We want to get rid of it, just as Anna was saying. And we are doing this from our judgment about this. And that can so often lead to unskillful thoughts, words, or actions. In the same way, even if it's something pleasant, we can say, oh, I want more of this. Oh, uh, you know, I can't share this because uh, I, might have, I may not have enough if I share. Or it can't be, I can't, I can't be more generous with my, my significant other because then I lose my power. There can be, although we're really in a positive situation, we can have quite um, um, unsupportive, un, unskillful emotions arise around it. Pleasant and unpleasant bring up emotions lots of times. They just bring up emotions. They don't have to. We sometimes just notice, oh, this is pleasant, and we don't then have a big emotional reaction. But sometimes we do. Sometimes the pleasant and unpleasant are arising from an emotional experience to begin with. What I would suggest to you, and you can watch this and test it for yourself, when you are being mindful of the pleasant, whether it's associated with a body sensation or an emotion or any sense gate, if you're aware of it being pleasant, you, if you stay with that awareness of being pleasant, you actually maximize the joy of the pleasant. So you've walked up to the top of the hill at sunset, and it's a beautiful sunset. and You notice it's pleasant. Wow, this is great. Then your mind goes... Oh, I need to hike more at this time of day. I wish my friend John were here. I wish you abandoned the pleasant. You just gave it up. For what? Planning? You want to give up a moment of being alive and, and, and pleasantness for another moment of planning? Really? Or worse still, you know, I don't take care of myself. I should do this more, but I'm so lazy. I'm just... You're, you're swapping a moment of joy? For, for the criticizing mind. So learning to be at ease with the pleasant just as pleasant keeps you in the moment when it's pleasant so you get a fuller experience of it. Now, if it's unpleasant, so here you are, your, your body's hurting and it's unpleasant. You go, oh, I can't stand this unpleasantness. Now, all of your attention is on that because you can't stand it. So you've really focused. Oh, I can't stand this unpleasantness. Oh, this, is, uh, this, this could go this and that. And now you're building a whole world out of one moment of unpleasant. You've taken something and doubled or tripled or quadrupled it. You've, because you've not been willing to just be with the unpleasant, 
you have made it much worse. If you will just notice, oh, this is unpleasant, and not go to the story, not create this whole uh, world out of it, it's much less unpleasant. Even being in the dental chair. I have practiced this having my bone and my jaw being uh, carved away without without being able to be fully numb to it because they, I couldn't, I, for various reasons, I couldn't take the, the numbing agent that was available to be used. And I watched at what point I lost this ability to just note that it was unpleasant. And it happened, I assure you, where I became totally lost and ow! <laughs> but for a long time, it was just unpleasant. So liberating to see this in our daily lives. <laughs> Notice that I laugh about it now. By the way, in that moment, when it ceased to be so intense, it came back to just being unpleasant. I was really kind of impressed with that. It came back to just being unpleasant. Once I, my nervous system was not overwhelmed by the by that stimulation, it came back to just being unpleasant. Still didn't like it, but I was not lost. This is the power of this. The more we get lost in our emotions, the, the, the less we're at ease with our emotions, the more we're going to be lost in our emotion, the less ease we will have in our emotions. So as we foster being at ease with our emotions, we become more at ease. When we don't foster it, we become more uneaseful in our emotions. One trick in this is the trick of letting loose of letting loose of what letting loose of your demand of how things are to be letting loose of the demand that you want it to be a certain way demand because you're entitled to be that it's fair to be it should be you've worked so hard you just want it doesn't matter the source of your demand but just letting loose of it my teacher the venerable Samedo the practice of letting go, well, first another moment because you forgot that we're, the world we're in here for a moment. So Ajahn Sumedho is uh, uh, this wonderful American teacher. He, at age 30 or 31, went uh, to, uh, uh, to Southeast Asia and studied with the, the, the famous meditation teacher of the last century, Ajahn Chah, and spent spent many, many years living in very uh, trying circumstances studying with this great teacher. And he has done so much to bring the Dharma to the West. And he established, uh, Ajahn Sumedho has, he's established monasteries in England and here and has been a great inspiration to many of us. And he has been an incredible inspiration to me. And he's uh, very... He, he is a man who is very at ease with his emotions in this way. We were talking about that in the, at, the, at the dining yurt tonight. So here he's talking about letting go. The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. Around strong emotions, we get lots of compulsive thinking, right? You've noticed this. Surely by now you've noticed this. How when you have a strong emotion, it can create a lot of compulsive thinking. You can't let loose of it. You think about it over and over again. It visits you. It just, you, you keep, you redo it or you chew on it or uh, you get mad at it or you cry about it. You, you, your mind won't let go. 
The practice of letting go is very effective for minds obsessed by compulsive thinking. You simplify your meditation practice down to just two words, let go. Rather than try to develop this practice and then develop that practice and achieve this and go into that and understand this and read the suttas and study the Abhidhamma and then learn Pali and Sanskrit, then, then the Madhyamika and the Prajnaparamita and then get ordination in the Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana and then write books and become a world-renowned authority on Buddhism. Instead of becoming the world's expert on Buddhism and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go, let go, let go. I did nothing but this for about two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I'd say, let go, let go, until the desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. (laughs) So a mind at ease can let go of strong emotions. A mind at ease can let go of strong emotions. And it is so important that we be able to do so. If we're going to have peace in our lives, if we're going to be able to live from our deepest values, all parts of the Dharma tie back in to liberation. This is a liberation practice. This is not mindfulness for mindfulness sake. It is mindfulness in the pursuit in the path of liberation, liberating the mind. A few years ago, I was with my teacher in India, and um, he has been, uh, he's taught me a number of uh, fairly esoteric meditation practices, and um, I really like when he chooses to do that but he chooses to do it when he chooses to do it. And it is so fantastic when we meditate together because I can entrain my mind with his mind. And I love to do this. There's a, there's a teacher in our Vipassana tradition that's one of my colleagues that I can also entrain my mind with, and I love to do that. I love to sit with her and do that because I can just... Something about the way when she's sitting, I just zone right in and go right with her and it's a wonderful thing but I, it's with him it's uh, because it's, uh, it's a very interesting experience to get to do this but very seldom will he sit with me he may show me something and then say okay go practice it or he will just I, I will come to see him now I've traveled halfway around the world right to see him he'll go okay just go sit over there under the tree and meditate for a while you know and that's it and then he goes off and does something else, you know, while I'm doing this. And um, uh, so it's always very fortunate when he will sit with me. So one day I'm there and I I go, uh, uh, when I go to see him, he will, um, he will to a large degree block his time and I will be his only student during this time. It's very fortunate in that way. Although that doesn't necessarily mean that he will actually give me that time, but he's not necessarily giving it to anyone else. He's just not doing that. This is the way it is with teachers. You take what is available. 
That's your practice. That's part of it. So he says to me, you know, I want us to spend a long time meditating together. And I go, great. <laughs> and he says, and, you know, I can't do it here because of all of the distractions and all, so I'm going to take you to this cave. And we're going to sit in this cave for a, a, a long period of time meditating together. He said it is a, a cave that used to be used for meditation, but they have closed it. So now nobody meditates there. They had closed it because there had been a huge infestation of snakes. And so people sitting in this cave and all these snakes were coming. So that's why it had been closed. And, and I said, great, let's go. And so the next day, you know, this is not an easy process, mind you, getting him across this bridge in, in Rishikesh to the other side so that we can get in this hired car and go f- along these, these rather uh, dangerous roads to get to this place. So we finally get to this cave place. We walk down this big, steep hill, and we get there, and it turns out that this, uh, this monastery that had been abandoned is being rebuilt. And they have, they have, they have closed the very back of the cave and so that there's, there, uh, there's no longer uh, a, a, a danger of the snakes. They they've, think they've sealed it off. So there's people around. So I, of course, am immediately disappointed, right, because this means we're not going to uh, be alone. And I'm thinking we're not going to even meditate. He says, well, he says, come on. So we go into this cave, and uh, as you go in, it, it's one of these uh, caves that you know, go into this kind of a, a serpentine kind of uh, fashion so that it gets darker and more dark and more dark still. And we, we, uh, uh, we go around a couple of those curves, and the outside is now completely gone. And we turn around this one corner, and here's, here's a, a, a teacher sitting up on a stone platform with a little uh, candle and chanting. And all these people are sitting there with him. Didn't hear a word till you turned that corner. That was amazing. People chanting and you're not hearing it. So go around a few more of these curves and, at one, and it's just pitch black. And he reaches down and takes my hand, which is like the, the great symbol of that, right? I'm liking all that. And I, we're, we're, stumbling, we're stumbling along and I, I bump into something and I realize, oh, it's a person. <laughs> And we have come to another cavern within this cave. And people are sitting there. And he takes me up front, indicates I'm to sit down right in front. And he hops up on this platform where there, there's, a, there's a, a, a Shiva and all. And he's, so he sits there as is appropriate because he's a, a senior Swami. So it's very appropriate that he's sitting there. So we're sitting there for a little while. And uh, the people that are sitting there I don't know who they were or anything, but they start to whisper or something. And uh, I later find out that that the, this is a group being led by someone who is a former student of him. But he hears this whisper and he goes, silence! Everything goes dead still. And so we're sitting there a while. Uh, he, doesn't, he doesn't tell me at all how long we're going to be sitting. You know how long you're going to be sitting. Am I going to be sitting for uh, 30 minutes or three hours? I have no idea. It's not all that comfortable, mind you. I'm sitting on this stone. And um, uh, I, after, oh, 30 minutes or so, I hear him rustling around. And he's rustling around quite a bit. And I think, well, what's, what's going on? But I keep my eyes closed. But then he, he hops down off this thing. And um, uh, I stand up because I think we're leaving. He says, no, you sit there. So we leave. He leaves. And I sit there. 
And he doesn't say how long to sit there. So I sit there until I'm ready to leave because there's what else do I do it on? What's my basis? So I leave. This is all little lessons for you. Pay close attention. I leave. Oh, I'm sorry. I left out a huge piece of this. So as he hops down, I haven't told this story in years now. Uh, when he hops down and I get up, he hands me a tin, like a sardine can, a, you know, a tin sardine can. And he says, put this in your backpack. So I put it in my backpack. And he says, oh, do not open it. <laughs> do not open it. So he leaves. I sit there. All sorts of things happen. It's a much longer story. I, I finally leave. I go outside. And he says, you still got that tin can? I go, yes. He goes, good. So then he says, he sends me down to the Ganges to sit there for a while. Again, he doesn't tell me how long. I come back and he goes, why did you stay so long? <laughs> then he says, well, come on. So we get, in a, we get back in the car, which magically appears, and we go off to this other place, and seemingly in the middle of nowhere, and we walk through this seemingly deserted area, and here sits a guy in a rowboat. And he rows us out into the middle of the river. So we sit in the river for a while. And then he rows us to the further shore. And we're on this further shore, and then we walk down to this uh, outcropping of rocks. And he says, you still got the tin can, right? And I go, yes. He says, well, hand it to me. So I pull it out of my backpack, and he goes, you know, it's really good that you didn't open this. He opens it and turns it upside down, and out falls this big scorpion that is very angry very angry. He said, yeah, he said, that would have been, you would have gotten stung had you opened that. And uh, I'm like, wow. And he, um, he says, you know, uh, look at it. Look, you can see how upset it is. Just notice. And he showed me how you can tell if a scorpion's upset and ready to sting. And I, I, so I learned about that. And then I insisted that we take it to some place that it could for sure survive and all this. So picked it back up and we transported and all this. Go back, go through this whole thing. I'm leaving out uh, much of the story, but not the important point here. So then a day later, I'm with him and he goes, so you know that scorpion? I go, yeah. He says, so the, your emotions are like that scorpion. If they don't find the proper place, they're very dangerous. And sometimes you have to contain them in order to get them to a safe place because they're going to bite you. They may sting you a lot or they could kill you. And, the, and so the, 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 the practice is the container to get, to get the emotions to the further shore. Isn't that beautiful? So our emotions, the difficult emotions can be, can be like that scorpion. If we have the container, we can be at ease. Now, it took a certain amount of faith on my part, right? He said not to open the can, so I never once thought of opening the can. I didn't want to see what was in it. It didn't cross my mind to do that because that wasn't, I was in relationship to him. I was trusting him with my practice. Turned out I was trusting him with more than that, but... um, that's, that was the nature of that relationship. We can trust our practice to contain our emotions. But in order to 
have the practice be strong enough to contain our emotions so that we can be at ease with our emotions, we have to make a commitment to them the way I was committed to going with his instruction. It isn't like if we say, oh, I'm going to have this practice, now everything should be okay. We have to practice our practice. That's the commitment. So a part of that practice of with strong emotions is the willingness to start over when we get lost in them. When they come up and we don't want them to come up and we, we go into a whole reactive state about them. Oh, I got lost in my emotions. I just need to start over. We can do this. The practice is strong enough to contain us. Each of us has this ability that we can meet the emotions. We really do. We really can do this. We learn with more moderate emotions to be with the more difficult emotions. Sometimes the most difficult emotion pops up and you'd rather it not, and you can't handle it so well, and the skillful thing to do is really to distract yourself. Because it takes time. This is the gradual path, as I said at the beginning of the talk. It takes time to get to these, to be able to deal with the, the most difficult emotions. But then what else do we have to do but to practice? Where are you going in life? Are you trying to have more pleasant moments? Do those pleasant moments last? Are you trying to avoid the unpleasant moments? How's that strategy worked thus far? Where are we going other than to meet this moment and this moment and this moment from our deepest values? Where else would we go? What else would we do? This is the lived life. This is the real source of joy. This is the real source of happiness when we're being with life with the fullness of our being in a way that's, that's ethical, that's generous, that's kind, that's, that's aiming to ease suffering. This, to me, is the, the, the basis, the ground from which then to be with all of our strong emotions when they arise. When there is an ease with the emotions, ease in the emotional body, you, uh, you're able to practice. You can even be at ease with the dis-ease of the strong emotion. You can really be caught in your grief, which is understandable grief. You can really be caught in your disappointment, which is understandable disappointment, because it's just grief. It's just an understandable disappointment. It's not more. It doesn't get to have more of your life than its appropriate place. It's contained because you know that you're grounded, you're meeting life in this larger context of showing up for it from your values. There's so many different benefits. I, I don't have time tonight to enumerate all of these benefits. But really uh, open to this sense of how can I be at ease with my emotions? Take as a value, if you like, I'm going to be at ease with strong emotions, whatever kind they are, and go from there. I think we're going to uh, stop with this. Uh, I just... I think this is enough. I can, the, the feeling in the room right now is the feeling I would like to leave you with. So as you practice these coming days, 
be interested in this easeful emotions. It's just a little reflection, just a little reflection. Can I be with this? Is there some way that I'm holding it off that's actually making it stick around? What's my value in relation to this emotion? Not what my preference is. Very sympathetic towards your preference. But not th- your values are different than your preferences. Your preferences are based on this pleasant and unpleasant. But your values are based on what really matters to you, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. So let's sit. So just notice what emotion is present now. Are you willing to be with this emotion? If there's no emotion present, are you willing to be with that? If you can't name the emotion, Just note that emotion is present. Don't worry about what that emotion is. It's just, oh, I feel emotion right now. See that you can do each of these. Notice where the emotions appear in the body. If you don't know, you don't know. Are you willing to open to this emotion? Thank you for your kind attention. We'll do a a 10-minute break and uh, just do a, a, a short sit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.